Welcome to the Human and Technology Podcast. This podcast is for anyone who develops, distributes or uses technology. For all those who always have the feeling that technology overwhelms or dominates them. For everyone who wants to know how to deal with technology in everyday life. For anyone who wants to understand what technology does to us and how we can get our lives back. This podcast is for those who want to make technology sexy. All the product developers, designers, UX, UI professionals, product managers, CTOs and CEOs. And it is for you. My name is Dr. Peter Reska. My friends call me Dr. Peter. I am your host and I am happy that you are here. This episode of the Human Technology Podcast is again one about the user-centered design process. And here I'm talking about the creation process. And again, this is a pretty thick thing. Um, there's a lot of information that um, I want to give to you. So again, I cut it into two pieces. So we're having episode one this time and next week there will be episode two. So episode one will focus more on the, let's say, generic uh, part of it. We'll focus more on uh, roles, on personas, uh, on scenarios, on use cases. And uh, the second episode then, one week later, will be more the core UX, UI design process uh, that, that you need to apply to get a successful product. So this is uh, the first half of the user-centered design process and the creation process. So back to another episode uh, of the Human Technology Podcast that focuses on the user-centered design process. We had an episode a few weeks ago, I think two weeks ago, which uh, was focusing on the analysis of data, the analysis phase, the very first phase that you run if you want to develop a successful HMI solution, a successful graphical user interface, if you want to create the best possible user experience and usability. And I describe this uh, three-phase process consisting of analysis, creation, and implementation. And uh, for this episode, I will focus on the creation phase, which is the biggest one that you have. So the analysis is very often a shorter phase, shorter by means of maybe 10% of the entire development time, And then you have uh, the creation phase, which is another, well, 70, 80% of the entire uh, time. And then you, you have the implementation phase where the HMI team usually is not anymore involved, but the task is passed on to hardware guys, software guys, electronic guys, mechanical developers, and um, then implemented and turned into a physical product. So... This creation phase is, is the major part that you have in a development. And 
Um, I will talk about all these um, steps that you do, all the things that you, you do. And um, yeah, at, at the very end, I will drop a couple of sentences on the implementation phase as an, a little add-on. And um, But this is a very, very um, small work package compared to, to what you do in the creation phase. All right, um, let's get into this. Um, another episode on the way from an idea to a product and the three phases that you should perform uh, with a user-centric design process to get the best possible product that you have. The first thing is think about whom to involve. HMI design, HMI designers, product designers, we have the same problem and the same advantage as cooks have it, for example, or architects. So, I mean, if you if you go to a restaurant and, and you have a meal, um, then you will have a pretty pretty quick um, impression whether you like it or not whether it's a good good food or not uh, not so good so you have your own own ideas about this and maybe you also have an idea on how to improve it what you would have done different and um, it's the same with uh, architecture so you have a look at a house or a bridge or whatever kind of building and you like it or you do not like it and you have an opinion on this one, and you know how you would like it. And it's the same with um, HMIs, it's the same with uh, graphic design, it's the same with product design, it's the same uh, with, with the user experiences. If we interact with a technology, we build an opinion right away, we, we have an idea of how it is and how it should be on what would be better for us because it's obvious. It, it, you, you can touch it and you can feel it. You can interact with it. And this, as I said, is um, an advantage because people will basically know what you talk about opposed, for example, to a chip developer or somebody that develops um, very basic software for an operating system. And the this is an advantage. Uh, this is also a disadvantage because everybody believes that he or she uh, knows what to do and knows um, the strong and, and the weak points of an HMI and, and wants to talk about this and wants to input his or her opinion. And... The problem is that uh, many people inside companies like top managers, like product managers, developers, they all have their own opinion on, on this one. And the big difference between these professionals and HMI developers, designers, graphic designers, UI designers, GUI designers, user experience designers, however you want to call them, is that uh, we have a broader and more generic view that we try to meet 80% or 90% of the targeted user group, that we have knowledge about the user group. And, um, I mean, of course, um, a technology developer will probably not be part of this 80% uh, 
user group that um, we should have in focus. But maybe this person is belonging to the other 20%. And so this uh, leads to, to many discussions. And so if uh, you have collected all the data and you start a development, um, think about who should be part of this, who should be part in the initial phases, who should be informed, who should be in, a, in different ways be involved in, in the development. And um, there are a few persons that are musts. Um, I mean, there's one group of person that is a must, that is the user. So we need to have strict user involvement in any step of the development. And I will make a separate episode on usability testing and quality testing on focus groups and all these different uh, tools and ways and and processes you can apply to to integrate the user into into the development process other parties inside of your company maybe sales and marketing i mean at the end of the day they are the ones selling the product they are the ones marketing the product they are essential for for the for the success of a product and so you should think about involving them plus the fact that these guys have a pretty good view on markets on users and they very often bring in valuable content and then tell you hey 80 percent of my customers say me this feature is not good or we need this additional feature or um, I experienced that um, I have a problem because this graphic design is not meeting the Chinese, the, I don't know, Arabic market, the Southern American market. And so there's a lot of uh, input there. Then think about involving developers. They are the ones that will bring your ideas alive. They're the ones that will make a product out of the idea that you have and, and they will turn your HMI, your solution, into something people can buy. And a little warning, these guys are a bit lazy and whenever they feel that the implementation of a certain HMI feature, of a certain graphic design, of... Uh, some interaction design is a problem, they may tell you, oh, this is impossible. We cannot do this. Or uh, even worse, we have never done this. And involving them um, is important to pick them up, to make them understand that uh, you do not develop an HMI just because you find it funny or good or it's your personal preference. But... You develop this one because it is user research based, it is data based, you have done all the analysis and you know what you're doing and you're just as much professional as they are and um, let them give their inputs. And sometimes it really is difficult or even extremely difficult to implement something and it may be easier to just find out, okay, this may be a bottleneck of the technology development and, well, there are ways around it and we can do it in a different way. So, yeah, involve the, the developers. Next one is the product management. 
And again, they're the guys that turn it into products. Um, they're the bosses. Um, they run the process. And so product managers, um, they need to be your friends and they need to be involved and they, they need to know what you're doing and thinking and why you're doing this. And then uh, it will ease up things during the development. And at the very end, um, involve the top management. All these top managers, they're humans. And they have exactly what, what I talked about, this, this feeling towards technology. And sometimes they have certain ideas and certain opinions and listen to them. And if it's not complete nonsense, Yeah, try try to think about it. And the, I mean, they're the ones that, that sit on the money as well. And and uh, so if you have a top manager in there, again, pick them up, um, involve them, make them aware of what you do and how professional you are and how much reflection you have during this process so that they learn that uh, you're not just some crazy woman or some crazy guy making uh, uh, colorful pictures and, and doing stuff. But so it, it is it is important um, that, that the top management is involved in a way. And uh, by the way, they are the ones that can stop a project with a single, 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 single advice. And so, yeah, um, just bring them in and, and ask them and involve them into the development. Once you have done this, um, the next step is um, to steam up your creativity, to, to spark it up, to have crazy ideas. And there are certain methods, tools and processes you can use. For example, brainstorming, SIT, scamper, benchmarking, think the optimum, think the opposite. There are a few out there and... Since this one is a, is a big, big item, I will make a separate episode about all these technologies and all these processes and how you can spark up your creativity, how you can involve people into a creativity process, how to collect ideas of others. So, um, yeah, that will be a separate one, but be aware there are these standardized processes that you can run and that you can you can use to create unusual new innovative ideas um, to make products interesting to make products successful and you can uh, also involve uh, the the persons we just mentioned into these processes because most of them uh, require small groups of people that uh, that are creative Next step then is the definition of roles. So technology is having very often having different users. And uh, the same machine, the same kind of technology is used by different people with different educations, ideas, with different contacts, with different targets. So you have, uh, well, there are different people working with this and I mean, if you have a look at a smartphone, this is not so much the case. Um, there you have just one person working with one smartphone because most of them are personally owned. 
pretty much the same for cars. Um, there's also more or less just one role. But uh, I had a project with a company that produces welding machines. And uh, these welding machines are part of an industrial process. And um, they are very often safety relevant. So if you weld uh, a ship and you do not do it the right way and it breaks in the first wave, then you have a serious problem. So these welding machines are part of, of safety relevant processes. And there are different people in different roles working with the machine. And um, they all have different requirements, different backgrounds. So in this case, um, there was the uneducated welder, as they called it. A person that uh, received maybe two, three days of training and then basically did um, a one standardized welding process. And this person was not able to change any of the parameters of, uh, of the welding machine. It was not able to do anything but just doing the core welding process. So that was one role we have defined. Another one was the educated craftsman working with this one. And this person had a training of two, three, four years, maybe additional training for safety relevant welding processes. So they're they're very well educated and they know exactly what to do and how to steer a welding process. And they were allowed to have a larger amount of, of parameters to change, not just starting and stopping the process, but changing various parameters in this very complex uh, welding process. So they had a larger set of, of uh, features, they had a larger set of parameters they were allowed to change. And that was, um, yeah, that required a different HMI. Plus the fact that they had an education and, and you could rely on more background knowledge and more complex information that, that you could give this group of persons. And then there were the process engineers. Uh, very often these welding machines are involved in larger production processes and automated uh, production processes. And then you have an engineer there yeah, that is also interested in all the welding parameters, but also in other parameters of the machine that makes it part of an interconnected uh, process. So maybe this welding machine needed to talk to some, some robots sitting on the side or to some packaging machine behind. And um, so again, another role in the interaction and this process engineer is probably never running a welding process, but he or she is adjusting the machine and, and setting the parameters in the machine to allow a smooth process. And then we had another few roles um, that were defined in this. And so we, we had um, um, at the end, I think it was five different roles we defined for this particular welding machine. And all of them had different requirements, were different uses. They had different things to do. They had different contexts of, of use. I mean, it's, it's a big difference if you interact with a machine during a production, during a welding process, or if you interact with a machine while it is standing still or in, in a laboratory or up front or uh, in, in a pre-production environment. 
So different roles uh, require different HMIs, different solutions, different features, and, and, and they bring in different targets, uh, they bring in different views, uh, different experiences, different educations. And uh, so you have to think about these different roles. And once we are talking about roles, um, we are very close to persons and with that to personas. Um, personas are a very, very interesting tool um, that help us a lot to develop optimal HMI solutions. As far as I know, they were introduced um, 2003 or 2004 by a guy called Alan Cooper, who is one of the big gurus of um, HMI development, usability, user experience. And he was a techie guy before, and he found out that um, all this technology is useless if um, there is not a good uh, user experience, not a well-designed usability and um, so he got into that and he, he wrote a very interesting book, one of the books I, I really love. It's called The Inmates Are Running the Asylum. And um, Alan is, is, I mean, he's a super crazy guy. I met him uh, many, many years ago. Uh, but the one thing he left to, to the, to the um, community of uh, HMI developers, UIX, UI developers, is the concept of personas. And the name comes from the persona in the theater. So the masks that uh, in ancient theaters, uh, the, the actors were wearing, they were called personas. And that's where it comes from. A persona is basically a stereotyped uh, personality, a person that stands for a certain user group. And what you do is you give it a name. You say, all right, this is Susan. And then you give it an age. So Susan is 49 years old. And then you give it an occupation. You say, Susan is an accountant. And she's married with three kids and she is living here and there and so on and so on. And so you create a person and then you add other features um, of, of the person to the persona that are relevant for your technology development. For example, personality, like extrovert versus introvert, or sensing versus intuition, thinking versus feeling, judging versus perceiving, and so on and so on. Then uh, you may add uh, technologies that are preferred. Is this a technology uh, junkie um, with a lot of internet and IT experience? Is this... An uh, automotive petrol hat person is this um, a person that is totally critical about technology. So this may also be a parameter. But also more general uh, things like the motivations. Um, is it a person driven by fear? Is it a growth-oriented person? Is it a power-oriented person? Is it a social person? And... Um, 
yeah, you, you also do this and then you add the brands maybe that uh, a person is having. Um, is this more an Adidas uh, person or more a Nike person? Is this more a Mercedes driver or more a BMW driver? Is this more an Apple user or an Android user? So you have all these um, things that you put together and then you do something uh, that is core in all these uh, personas that is that you put the goals and the frustrations down that this person is having with your technology. So if, for example, if you develop a banking website, you write down these are the goals of Susan, aged 49, being a mother of three, and the goals for a banking website is, and then you add three, four, or five points there. And what are the frustrations she is having with all the banking software? And then you write another couple of bullet points down there that are the core frustrations uh, she, she is experiencing. And then you write a little bio, a biography. Um, she is an accountant and she lives there and there and so on. And, and, and write this one a little in words. And then you, you put this one down on a big piece of paper. Don't, don't just uh, write it down in, in a word text or put this in a PowerPoint file. Put this into, turn this into a poster, a big poster that you put onto your walls. This is what you do with the personas. And this personas, this persona follows you through the entire development of your technology, of your user interface, of your HMI, of your human machine interface. So whenever you make a decision, you have a look at your persona and you ask yourself, okay, how will Susan work with this one? Will she be satisfied with whatever idea I'm having here? And so you reflect your ideas and you reflect your process against the persona. Two questions remain. How many personas do I need? Quest answer answer to this question is the typical uh, usability UX guys uh, answer. It depends. The number of personas you need depends on the product you're having, depends on your targeted user group. If you have, uh, if you design an aircraft cockpit, then you will be able to live with maybe one, two, maximum three different personas. Because aircraft uh, pilots, uh, people working in aircraft cockpits, they're highly selected, highly educated. Um, they basically think the same way all around the world. They are um, yeah, a pretty, pretty, pretty focused user group. So there is a low number of, of personas is, uh, is absolutely sufficient. The opposite is maybe a car or a smartphone where you have many different user groups that are highly diverse, um, that are totally different. And so you have these, um, I mean, if you have a car, you have younger drivers and older drivers. You have professional drivers. You have people that maybe drive once a week, a, a few miles with their cars. 
And you all have them. And then for all of them, you will need a, a persona. And so you may up, end up with uh, 8, 10, 12 different personas that, that uh, you need to, to have. And the second question, uh, I mean, the first question was, how many do I need? And the second is, where do I get the data from? How do I know what kind of person I'm having here? And again, there is a wide variety of um, ways and processes that are possible that you can you can apply to get all the information to get uh, the information you need. And I mean, the straightforward way is ask a few marketing people, turn on common sense. Look around, talk to people, and just do it yourself and put it down. Uh, this may work in certain contexts. Uh, if you have a small product, if you have a very well-established product, maybe you know your user group, um, you know who they are. It's out there on the market, and you, maybe you just need a couple of improvements. And then, then this way of self-collection and common sense and thinking and self-research is, is the right way to do this. The opposite is I know of, a, um, of an automotive supplier, first-year supplier from, uh, from Germany. They invested uh, 2 million euros slash pounds slash dollars into the creation of personas for... Uh, three markets, uh, Germany, China, and the USA. And they had uh, marketing companies involved. They had their own market research, their own marketing sales uh, organizations involved. So they had a very broad database internally and externally, and they had professionals creating these personas for them. And as I said, it was a $2 million project. Um, that they had to set up to to get this one done. So again, here it depends. It depends on the variety of user groups you have. It depends on the new markets you have. So if you have never ever sold anything to, let's say, South Korea, it makes sense to have personas from South Korea and to have a professional company or professional processes, professional uh, ways of work to set up the personas. From my experience, um, the for most of the projects, we're somewhere in the middle. So it is a little more than just putting some data together that I find useful. Uh, but you do not need to to hire some some external marketing market research companies and spend two two million dollars. So the reality, as in, in most cases in life, is somewhere in the middle so that you have uh, you do it yourself uh, you pull in other people you pull in uh, market research knowledge and then you create these personas that then works pretty well next thing then is um, what do i do what, what do I do with all these informations that I have, uh, with all the creativity I, I, I had, with uh, the roles I have defined, with the personas that uh, I have? What, what are the next steps? 
And the thing I am doing with my clients very often is uh, setting up scenarios. Scenarios is a very good thing um, to get into your user, to get into your personas, to get into the problems um, they're having. And a scenario is basically a story you write that is, um, yeah, after talking to people, after analyzing personas and their frustrations, what is happening during maybe a day that you follow your person through a certain scenario. It may look like um, Alan wakes up early in the morning. Uh, he has uh, He's checking his mail on, on, on the smartphone besides the bed. Then he gets up and uh, has a prepared coffee from his coffee-making computer. While he is uh, waiting for the coffee to be finalized, he is checking the news on a screen hanging in his kitchen and so on. And, and then this person is having problems and is solving the problems, is annoyed about these problems or is frustrated. You do all this and, and, and it may also be positive so uh, that, that Alan is experiencing a positive surprise and, and, and loving that. Uh, and, and so you have all this and then you analyze this and you cut this into small pieces and, 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 and you write this entire story basically. And again, the question is, how many do I need? I am working on a project with a, an automotive startup, OEM at the moment. And uh, for the first round, uh, we have developed four personas, four markets uh, and four totally different scenarios that we wrote for them. So there is one person from Los Angeles, there is one person from Johannesburg, there is one person from Shanghai and one person from Munich. And uh, two of them are male, two of them are female. Um, there are one comparably young person, one is a very senior citizen, two are in the middle. And so we created these uh, scenarios, these typical scenarios around Uh, uh, the product that, that uh, we designed, which is a, a car that we want to, de want to develop. And so in this case, uh, we created four of them, being aware that this will not cover everyone, everywhere, in every situation. But as a starting point, these four scenarios, I think they are pretty good and you can, you can work with this. What you then do is creating use cases. And these use cases, they are derived from the scenarios. So you run through the scenarios and you say, okay, what is a use case? Um, a use case, for example, is charging the vehicle. Another use case is opening the vehicle. Another use case is booking a vehicle. Another use case is uh, receiving a traffic message in the vehicle. So you drill it down into and this may go up to 100 200 500 depending on the product depending on how well elaborated your, your scenarios are on how many different personas you have may up go to 500 1000 maybe even use cases single use cases that you have and that you um that did you define And uh, what I usually do is um, that uh, I add a technology that I think could be good to solve 
um, that I also add a user experience um, that uh, is, is, is targeted in this uh, particular use case. And then um, you go on uh, into storyboarding. So storyboarding is a very good thing to visualize scenarios and use cases. This may look like a cartoon. Um, and if you have, and I'm very happy that in my environment there are excellent uh, cartoon drawers. And uh, they totally love it. And then we have all these, these use cases. And they do this on a very professional level. They put this one down and they draw all these uh, different, different... Uh, uh, use cases uh, and even complete scenarios, entire days, uh, or maybe just single pictures. It again depends on, on what you want to do and then put them into storyboards. And they may also add text to this, explanation text. And these storyboards, they have uh, different roles in the development process. So one thing is, if you see it, if you yourself have a visual uh, clue if, if you if you see what's happening you will get new ideas you will get a deeper impression uh, you will get a better empathy for for your personas and the people um, that, that will work with your product that will use your product and uh, it is very good to show it to um, top management people to pro product uh, managers to developers and, and discuss with them. I mean, if you have a wall full of, of uh, cartoon strips, of comic strips, uh, you can run through them and you can take people there and show it and discuss it and say, hey, this is here, this is there, why not doing this, why not doing that? And convincing them and creating empathy for your user in the management of your company, in the in the top management that you have and during the development process. This is the end of the first part of the episode on the user-centered design process, the creativity part. The second part, another episode uh, with more details on how to prepare all the deliveries that is coming up next week. That's it for today. Thank you for spending time with me. I hope you were able to take something with you and do something for yourself that will be forever. For an ongoing exchange, you will find me on LinkedIn and on my websites, Peter minus rusker.com and beyond-hmi.de Write me an email on the podcast at beyond-hmi.de Tune in next time, take care and stay healthy.